Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Good morning, everybody. Hey, that was raucous back there. <laughs> uh, whether you're joining us here on our campus or online, I just want to say welcome to uh, Sunridge on Sunday morning. We're so glad that you guys are here. If you're new here, my name is Britt. I serve here as the lead pastor. And if you're new or newer, every first Sunday of the month, we have uh, something we call Welcome to Sunridge. It's just for anybody that's new and wants to know more about our church. We'd love to meet you. Uh, we bring our staff through and uh, whatever elders are available that day. And so it's a great opportunity for you just to kind of find out a little more about us. We don't do anything weird at it. We don't try to sign you up for anything. Uh, that comes later. But... Um, <laughs> You know, we'd, we'd love for you to come and, and uh, drop by there for that. So I got a question to start off for you guys today. Like, has, has anyone ever asked you a question that, uh, that put you on the spot or kind of shocked you? That like, kind of came out of nowhere? You know, something like, you know, well, how much did you make last year? <laughs> or uh, will you marry me? Or, you know, you remember in high school when your parents said, were you really at Mark's house last night? <laughs> or the proverbial, do these pants make me look? Well, I don't need to go there. So anyway, we're in a study of Mark's gospel. And the section we're looking at today is bookended by two questions uh, from Jesus that lead to two different confessions. And uh, in the middle... Uh, there's an occurrence, it's called the transfiguration, in which Jesus is revealed um, as the true son of God. And then also in that middle, he talks about what it means to be a disciple. So we're going to try to cover all of that today. And uh, then along the way, consider what it means to you and me, you know, living here in the Temecula Valley in 2024. So right away, we're going to start with the first of the confessions. Uh, it's uh, in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 33. And it's when Peter says, you are the Messiah. This is a confession by Peter. By the way, um, someone pointed out to me, uh, there's a typo in the back of your uh, note sheet for our questions. I know many of you are turning over to look right now. Uh, there is no Mark 89. I just want you to know that I know that as your pastor, and that's a typo. Because Mark's is the shortest gospel, and that would make it the longest one. So anyway, this point, um, is, it's a turning point in Mark's gospel, uh, and a turning point for Peter, because something really changes from this point on. They're no longer bouncing back and forth across the Sea of Galilee. They're not just going to stay in the region of Galilee where Jesus was born. They're going to start to move toward Jerusalem. We talked about that at the beginning of the book. We're coming into a new section. If we look at Mark geographically, that Jesus and his disciples are going to be moving toward Jerusalem where he's going to be crucified and resurrected. And at this point, what Mark tells us is that Jesus and his disciples are having a conversation while they're on this long walk from Bethsaida to Caesarea Philippi. 
and Bethsaida's on, I don't know if you remember the map, but um, it's on the north part of the Sea of Galilee. And Caesarea Philippi is about 30 miles up toward uh, Mount Hermon. And so 30 miles, estimated 10 hours uh, of walking. And it's here that Jesus is having this conversation with his disciples along the way. And um, so they escaped the crowds for a while, which has been difficult for them. And uh, now they have plenty of time to talk. And it's on that walk that Jesus asked them, who do people say I am? And as far as we know, this is the first time that Jesus has asked the disciples that question to put them on the spot. What do people say about me? And uh, thus far, as far as we know, all Mark has really asked them to do is to follow him which is to go with him, to observe what he does, and to work side by side with him, to live with him, to be taught by him, and to eat with him, and to travel with him. And uh, it's, it kind of brings out something that I think applies to us like immediately, that, you know, the disciples walked with Jesus for quite a while before he asked this question. And sometimes we get the idea, like in church, that like someone becomes a Christian and then they join a church. But that's not really how it works. And this is probably your story as well as mine. Often we belong before we believe. Because people need to see faith. They need to experience faith. And so Jesus does this with his disciples. They're, they're traveling with him, and now he kind of brings it to a decision point. Um, so it's... It's kind of like just, you know, like if I was teaching a fire department class. By the way, have I ever told you guys I used to be a fireman? Um, you know, the instructor would stomp on the, on the floor, and that meant this was going to be on the test. There's no test here, but this is really important because it's, it tells us something about how we need to include one another along the journey. That being a Christian isn't just about confronting someone with, you know, the morals of Jesus or, or just slapping them upside the head with the gospel, but it's like, come and see. Come and walk with me. We, we do life together, and this is how people learn the gospel. They observe it in us. Now, the disciples answer this first question, you know, who do people say I am? Almost in unison. Uh, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, you're one of the prophets. So, in other words, Jesus, you have favor, favorable ratings in the polls. Um. And then, from that kind of generalized question, Jesus models the perfect small group leader discussion, where he starts his question, like, at a, at a general level, what do people say? And then he's going to reframe it to the personal. And it seems like Peter's the only one to answer here. But what about you, Jesus asks. The people say this, but what about you guys? Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. So that's Peter confessing Christ for the first time. Now remember that Mark's purpose in, in writing his gospel is to bring people to this very conclusion that Jesus is who he said he was. And um, since that's the case, you would almost think that, well, now there's going to be this big conversion party for Peter. But that's not what happens. As, as C.J. read, Jesus immediately tells him, keep it quiet. And... Uh, then he starts talking about his death. Why? That seems like such a downer. Well, you know, 
we can only guess, right? Specifically what it is, as we've talked before, maybe, maybe Jesus wants to remain incognito a little longer. He doesn't want the Pharisees to be coming down on him hard yet. Or maybe he wants Peter to remain silent because he still has the wrong idea about who the Messiah is. And uh, he doesn't want misinformation being spread about him. Or maybe he just wants to wait a little longer for the disciples' eyes to be completely open about what it means to follow him. And we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. It becomes clear that Peter... uh, believes, as many did in that day, that they believed the Messiah would be kind of like this victorious military king from the line of David who would rescue the, Rome, rescue the Jews from the Romans. But Jesus is going to tell them that the Messiah is going to stop, establish God's rule in people's hearts by giving his life in Jerusalem. In verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. But, you know, just like if we were there at this point, they, they didn't get it. But Jesus is, is now telling them how this is all going to end. And, you know, the disciples have their version of how it was supposed to go. We're going to defeat and dominate the pagans We're going to be the ones in power, and we're going to dictate the way the world is. We're going to return to a society that is dictated by the rules of God. It's going to be a theocracy, and we're going to be in charge of it. But then there's Jesus' version, in which he's basically saying, I'm not going to raise an army. I'm going to submit myself to be crucified, and I'm not going to take power. I'm going to give it up, and I'm not going to rule I'm going to serve. And although I'm the true king, my goal isn't to dominate, but to sacrifice myself and to demonstrate God's love for people. And and what they don't realize is that this is the triumph of the gospel. It's not how they thought of it. And, you know, you can tell that this is still an important concept for Christians to, to, to grasp in the first century because Paul talks about this upside-down kingdom that Jesus is establishing a few decades later. In Philippians 2, 6, when he wrote of Jesus, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found an appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So the kingdom that Jesus is bringing is very different than what they thought or what they hoped. And then Mark, Mark shows us how disturbing this is to Peter. In verse 32, Peter took him, Jesus, aside, and he began to rebuke him. So Peter's got his nerve, right? I mean, he's saying, look, Jesus, are you okay? I think you're a little confused here. And this word rebuke, that's a really strong word in the original language. This same word that Jesus uses uh, in what he does to demons, he rebukes the demons. And... um, 
by rebuking Jesus. Peter is condemning Jesus in the, very, in, in the strongest terms. But Jesus responds, and, and right before the others, verse 33, he turns and looks at his disciples, and he rebuked Peter, and he said, Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but mere, merely human concerns. So he calls Peter out. He's, as his response, he says, your response is satanic. Your plan is not my plan. And this is, this is in your notes. Peter here serves as an example of how someone with genuine belief can become at cross purposes with God. See, Peter's genuine in his confession, but he's, he's got a jumbled up idea in his mind about who Jesus is. And so at this point, he's at cross purposes with what God is doing in the world. And so Jesus pulls no punches with him, calls him Satan. And uh, see, Peter's version of the Christ is, is loaded up with all these personal expectations about what God is going to do for him and what he's going to do to his enemies. But Jesus' agenda wasn't about achieving this ultimate domination over, over those pesky pagans. Um, it was about turning pagans into saints. The power that Jesus exercises isn't the power of domination. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. By the way, have you, have you ever noticed, let's just think about our own Christian history for a while. Um, how has it gone when Christians seize power and then impose that power on others? How has that gone in history? Can anyone remember the Crusades? See, whether, whether it's geopolitically or militarily or nationally, when, when Christians have a goal to, to be in power, it doesn't go well. It's at, it's at cross purposes with what God is doing in the world. Now, I'm not saying that, I'm not talking about when Christians hold positions of power or authority in the government or they're active in politics. That's all really good. I hope that, I mean, some of us have that calling. That's my vocation. I'm going to, you know, you know try to win this election or you know, hold this, this position at the county government or, or in a local city or whatever. Those are, those are callings that God gives people. But when the goal of Christians becomes to be in power, to rule and to punish those who don't believe, it loses its Christian part. And when Peter thinks like that, Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. And I think now it's just... It's just beginning to dawn on the disciples that Jesus came to lead this upside-down kingdom. See, in the disciples' minds, Jesus should be giving them a pregame speech about how to go out and dominate the other team. Instead, it feels, probably feels to them like he's saying, we're going to go out and lose on purpose. We're going we're to help the other team to victory. That's what it must have felt like for first century Jew, following who they believe to be the Messiah. So Jesus takes this as a teaching moment to explain 
the way God's kingdom works. And he begins to spell out the fine print of what we call discipleship today. And we can learn from this. Remember, thus far, the disciples have kind of been on the glory train, right? Um, healings, miracles, all-you-can-eat fish sandwiches, owning the Pharisees and debates, right? But then Jesus shocks them with this in verse 34. He called the crowd to him along with the disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. And in this brief sentence, Jesus is delineating what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it will cost us to be a disciple of Jesus. Salvation, my eternal security with God, is entirely based on grace, what Jesus has done. But Jesus distinguishes the disciples from the crowd here. And he says, if you want to be my disciple, you must, number one, deny yourself. Deny yourself. That doesn't mean just giving up something for Lent or deny yourself, denying yourself something like a nice chocolate bar or a car or a vacation to BVI. He's saying deny your self-ambition over his will. Remember, Jesus did teach them to pray, your will, not mine. Being a disciple, then, uh, of Jesus means that Jesus comes first. Not just on a t-shirt or on a bracelet, but in line. Jesus is first in line. He's the head of the line. He's ahead of my opinion, of my preference, of my moral compass, of my will. All of that is subjugated to Jesus when I deny myself. He comes first. Just like John the Baptist said, he must increase, but I must decrease. Secondly, Jesus says, if you're going to be my disciple, you have to take up your cross. Deny yourself and take up your cross. And that had to be a little confusing because Jesus wasn't crucified yet. But crucifixion was known. It was a known method of execution at that time. And crucifixion communicated not just this horrible, cruel death, but there was humiliation involved in this. The Romans would humiliate the condemned by making them carry a, the crossbeam of the cross to the place where they were going to be executed, often naked, the ultimate degradation. And here Jesus is saying, he's comparing being a disciple to taking up your cross, to carrying this, this um, method of execution with you. And he's saying, if you want to be my disciple, it's not always going to be fun. It's not always going to be pleasurable. It might mean embarrassment or ridicule or humiliation. It can mean suffering could mean enduring something that's unfair. And it could mean doing something that wasn't on your list to do or not doing something that was on your list to do. And sometimes we wear the cross as decoration or as a badge of courage or honor. Some brandish it like a weapon. And Jesus said, bear it. Bear the cross. And it's only then when we've denied ourselves 
and we've taken up our cross, that we're truly ready for this last requirement of a disciple when he says, follow me. Follow me. That is, walk the way I walk. Remember, I'm the line leader. I'm the captain. I lead. You follow. You know, when I... um, I know I'm going to go way back here, so I'm going to have an old-school moment. But um, in my strange brain, this makes me think of The Jerk. Anybody saw that movie? Okay, yeah, it's pretty good. Anyone under 30 seen that movie? <laughs> How about anybody under 60? <laughs> um, and you remember, there's this, this scene where Steve Martin, you know, everyone's given it. He's lost everything, his company, his girlfriend. Bernadette Peters, and he's losing his house, and he's like, he's just like being stubborn, and he's like, you know, I don't need any of this. I don't need any of you, except this chair. And he's like, that's all I need, this chair. I don't need anybody. I don't need anything. This just chair, and this lamp, and it's such a great scene, because he's walking down the street, carrying this stuff, and I, I don't know, in my mind, this makes sense, that you know, Jesus, I'm willing to give up everything for you, deny myself, take up my cross and follow you. I don't need any of that other stuff except this car <laughs> and, you know, this checkbook and, um, you know, my life the way it is. That's, that's all I need, but everything else I'm willing to give up. I don't know. That's little, what it's like to be in my head. <laughs> but sometimes... Following Jesus, uh, sometimes we want to follow Jesus like Steve Martin in the jerk. Hope that sticks with you. But this is the difference between being part of the crowd and being a disciple. And so if, hopefully you like me, you're thinking, wow, that's really serious. You know, why would I want to do such a thing as that when I could just be in the crowd? But then Jesus gives them the rationale behind this demand that seems so unreasonable. Verse 35, he says, forever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. I mean, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their, whole, their soul? And you know, every culture, every society has kind of like these certain things that, that, that say like, if you have this, you've arrived. You're, you're a real person. You're a person of value if, if you have this. And what's interesting here is the word for life that Jesus uses here is psyche, from which we get psychology, right? So he's not saying if you want to save your life, you have to truly die, like physically die. He's, our psyche is our identity, our personality. And it's what makes us distinct from other people. So he's not saying, I, w- I want you to lose your sense of being the human that I made you to be. He's, he's not saying that. He's not saying like sit and contemplate the, the fuzz in your navel until you lose sight of who you are. Um, he's saying exactly the opposite. He's saying uh, lose your life to save your life. He's saying lose yourself to find yourself. In other words, he's, he's, he's saying like... If you, if you somehow manage to punch out the whole list of what society's telling you will make you valuable and a person of worth, a real person, it won't be enough. 
It won't be enough to overcome that kind of wondering that's inside us, wondering if we matter, if, if these things that, that I've accumulated um, that give me value, they're, they're not going to be enough. Could, because we could be surrounded by all the stuff that the world has told us will make us happy. And, and we could be deemed a success in doing so, but not find true life. Because we think, well, if this is who I am, and this, this is, you know, and, and of course, God wants to give me everything of who I am. And it's exactly the opposite. When we build our identity on what we achieve or who loves us or who we need to prove ourselves to, all of that will prove insufficient as something that informs who we are or our identity. And we just think, well, if I, if I can get all these parts of my life squared away, then I'll, then I'll be the person I'm supposed to be. But... What if, what if I can no longer achieve that thing that I was pursuing? Or I, I, won't, I, I no longer have the things that I think give me value. Or the person that um, loves me stops loving me. Then, then I lose my, my value. I lose the sense of who I am. And, you know, I, I love what Tim Keller, I always go to Tim Keller. Have you noticed that? He's one of my favorites. He says that even Christians uh, mis misperceive the gospel in this flawed way. And here's what he writes. If the gospel to you is, I used to be a bad person, but now I'll start going to church, giving and serving. And then I'll be a decent and respected person. Then I'll be a worthy self. That's just trading one performance-based identity for another. That's in Keller's book on Mark, Jesus the King. But Jesus says, I want you to shed that old performance-based identity and find your identity in me. And it's living like this, according to the gospel, that sets us free. Remember, Jesus did say, the truth will set you free. See, when we first receive Christ, we, we do so because we want forgiveness of sin, right? And... We need his love and acceptance, and we see we're broken, and we need fixing. And then Jesus comes in. We're so thrilled to be a Christian. We're so excited. But isn't it true after a while, like we start to see what God is up to in the world, and we're not really sure we're up for the journey? And we're afraid that we'll fail. We're afraid that our belief isn't strong enough. And in God's kingdom... Our performance, our skills, our looks, our achievements, our strengths, they're, they're not what give us value. God has already given us value as, as a creation made in his image. And that's why letting go of the world's um, demands and grip on us is a way to truly find who we are. Now, there's a section that comes up here called the Transfiguration. It's in Mark 9, 2 through 13. We taught on this recently, but I just want to touch on it. The, this reality of what is coming has to be chilling to the disciples. So Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up a mountain, to the top of a mountain, for something to occur. And, uh, you know, most of us day-to-day, -day, we live in the ordinaries, and this is 
like this is a miracle. And, you know, it's amazing how once in a while God, God pulls back the curtain, right? And he lets us see something or allows something to happen that we just see his glory in a way that we never had. And on this mountain, uh, verse 3, Jesus' clothes become dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. And then a cloud appeared and covered them. And a voice came from the cloud, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Now, if you remember our study of Moses in Exodus, uh, God comes down to, um, to Mount Sinai in a cloud. And Moses was with God, the Bible says, like they were friends. And, and yet Moses wanted to know more of God. He wanted to know more of his glory. But then God told Moses, you know, you, no human being can see my full glory and live. So remember, God puts him in the cleft of a rock, and he covered him with his hand, and he walked by, allowing Moses only to see a remnant of uh, his glory after he had passed by. And just that changed Moses. Remember, he, he horned, his, his face was in, lit up so that he had to veil himself with, when he was in the presence uh, of others from then on. Now, here we are in the top of a mountain, and God's glory appears again. There's a mountain, the vo a voice from a cloud, and even Moses makes an appearance here. And it's like Yogi Berra said, it's deja vu all over again. Only this is different. Because Jesus doesn't reflect God's glory. This is, this is important. He doesn't just point to God's glory as the prophets and Moses did. He is God's glory. And that's what Hebrew says, uh, the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 1.3, the Son, that is Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful world. Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. And I think, this is just me, that this, this experience that the disciples have was, um, it was necessary because he just shocked them with news of his imminent death and other things. And so I think that God has given them a little something extra here. They witnessed Jesus in all of his glory. And I think that there's a lot of ways to look at the transfiguration. I'm not saying that my way is right, but it's kind of like this is a healing balm to them. Um, with the reality that just kind of like got dropped on them. And I, don't you find that like people have remarkable strength and stamina uh, because of this sense of calling in their lives or a vision that God has given them. Like some way we experience God in a different way or we see more of his glory and it, it gives people confidence to endure things that they wouldn't normally be able to endure, to go through things that they couldn't. I think of Martin Luther King when he said, I've been to the mountaintop. There was something that drove him that made, made it capable for him to endure the things that he endured and to continue on in the civil rights movement. But sometimes we go through a trauma or an illness or a loss and God gives us something, right? He gives us something a little extra to get, get through that. Or we can be in a difficult season. And um, I don't know. It's like, I call it like a tangible presence of God. It's like you can almost feel God's presence in your life and in, in a more powerful way than you normally could. And it's the thing that sustains you through 
the awful thing that's happening at that time, the thing that you're going through. You know, the disciples, they don't have a clue at this point, like how, how bad it will be, how hard it's going to be. But I believe that they're going, to be recall, they're going to be able to recall moments like this with Jesus. And they're going to be able to have confidence in God's plan. And they're going to draw from his strength to continue in what God has for them. And I think that that's true for us today. The last confession, or, you know, the second confession, uh, is very different than Peter's. Uh, it's in Mark 9, 14 through 29. And here a man says, I do believe, help my unbelief. See how that's so different from Peter's? It's not as bold and confident. But I, I think it's just as informed and genuine. You know, for the disciples, it would have been nice to stay up on the mountaintop, you know, but they got to come down to reality. And when they do, there's this big argument going on between the teachers of the law, the theologians of the day, and Jesus' disciples, and a big crowd of people because there's been a failure to exercise a demon from this young boy. And they're all arguing about it. And isn't it just like the self-righteous to be arguing instead of helping. And in, in a self-righteous environment, our inadequacies and our failures become a reason to point at others, to blame others. And while they're arguing, they miss what should be getting their attention. It's, it's a father who's overwhelmed with grief for what has gripped his son. And I wonder how many people have been turned off by church because they see a bunch of Christians spending their energy on winning debates instead of making a difference. And I think that that's what's going on here. A dad has come to the disciples for help with his son who goes into convulsions that the way they're described is like a grand mal seizure, but they're unable to heal him. And the father asks of Jesus, Mark 9, 22, if you can do anything, Take pity on us and help us. You know, that sounds like a legitimate prayer to me. I wonder how many moms and dads that are here or listening online, um, you've prayed a prayer like that for one of your children, either in their illness, in addiction, in the troubles that they faced, the dangers that you see, because they have special needs, and you're like Jesus. If you can do anything, take pity on me and help us. And Jesus replies, if you can, everything is possible for one who believes. Now, that phrase has been misinterpreted and I would say oftentimes abused by charlatans, by faith healers, who kind of just say, well, see, this here, the Bible says, name it and claim it. And God is obligated to give you anything you want. And that is false teaching. The invitation of faith is not to believe in something, this, this thing that will happen for you, but it's to believe in someone. To place our trust completely in the God who we can trust to do anything he desires to do for his purposes. And the father takes him at his word the best he can. He says, 
He exclaims, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. Don't you love that? Can you relate to that? You know, we don't need amazing faith for our faith to be real. It just needs to be genuine. And this, this dad's confession is so authentic. You know, shaky faith is real faith too. D.L. Moody talks about three kinds of faith. He says, one, there's struggling faith, which is like someone almost drowning. And then there's clinging faith, which is like someone clinging to the side of a boat. And then there's resting faith, which is like someone safely in the boat, able to reach out and save others who are drowning. Um, this dad has clinging faith. And sometimes faith looks like that. Genuine faith can say, I'm, I'm full of doubt. I don't have the strength um, to meet this challenge. I'm afraid. And genuine faith can pray a prayer like this dad did. If you can, help. You know, my first prayer of faith was kind of like that. I've told my story so many times here. I know you guys are sick of hearing it, but, you know, like when I was saved in a Baptist church, I went, you know, it was like, come forward. I came from the last row in the balcony of 3,000 people down to the altar with my buddy, Trotter, and uh, we both prayed the sinner's prayer on the steps of the stage, you know, just like we have here. And But my prayer, man... I said the words, but in my brain, I'm thinking, I hope this is true. <laughs> you know, I believe it as much as I can believe it right now. And uh, I think sometimes pe people think, um, you know, if I have questions, it must not be faith or it must not be real faith. I, I like what Galileo said. I'm going to put it up on the screens. I do not feel obliged to believe that the same God who has endowed us with sense, reason, and intellect has intended for us to forego, forego their use. <laughs> if your faith has doubts, good for you. Because real faith is accompanied with questions, by questions and doubt. In fact, doubt is a synonym for dependency, right? Right? which seems to be the main reason why these disciples couldn't heal this boy. They had healed before, but what went wrong? They asked, why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus said, this kind can only come out by prayer. So Jesus wasn't pointing out that they had failed to follow some pious practice that they should have done, some tradition. He was saying, you forgot where your strength comes from. The disciples didn't pray because they underestimated the power of evil in the world. And they overestimated their ability to deal with it. And I think that when we admit our frailty, our need for God, our doubts, we are then demonstrating a dependent faith. Which, don't you think, is genuine faith after all? You know, Mark wrote his gospel to show that Jesus is the Son of God. And today's passages show us two kinds of belief. One is bold, yet flawed. The other is humble, but genuine. 
And with Peter, we, we noted that he served as an example of someone who had genuine faith, but get, excuse me, could get it wrong. I, sometimes my, my mouth gets ahead of my brain. He had genuine faith, but he got it wrong. And, and he was even at cross purposes with what God was doing in that moment. But the father serves as an example of how someone with genuine faith can say, I believe, but help me. I'm going to ask the band to come up. When the dad comes before Jesus, he doesn't come with the swagger of Peter, does he? More often than not, a faith-filled prayer can sound like this. I believe, but help me. I'll try it, but help me. I'll go, but help me. I'll do it, but help me. I'll say it, but help me. I'll change, but help me. I'll stay, but help me. See, confessions of faith come in different forms. Sometimes they're bold. You're the Messiah. But just as genuine is the prayer that says, I believe. Help my unbelief. And it doesn't matter what we're capable of producing. See, our confidence isn't in our ability to believe. Our confidence isn't in us. It's in Jesus. And whether... Your faith is super bold in this moment and you, have the, you, you feel the sense of confidence in your everyday life, good for you. But if you are standing on shaky knees and your faith has questions and doubts, that faith can be just as genuine because you're placing your trust not in what you can accomplish but in what Jesus has accomplished and what he will will accomplish. God, I pray for those that are struggling in their faith that they would have a sense of your presence in their lives and that they would see their doubts and questions as a pathway to depend upon you more. And um, I pray that there are, if there are folks here that are listening or that are exploring faith, that they think of faith differently. And that they see that the goal is for all of us to wholly lean upon you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Let's stand and worship together, church. Hey, everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.